1: Hey, once again, here we are, and thank you so much for joining us on The Brian Hyde Show today. Man, what a crazy weekend, and I I mean generally. 2020 has been a nutty year to start with, but uh, it's just getting crazier. I don't know if you saw some of the things that were popping off over the weekend. Uh, A big, big clash between Antifa and Proud Boys protesters in Portland. Um, Other demonstrations going on around the country. Uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin apparently uh, had a riot last night after police uh, shot a guy, uh, a black man. Of course, you know it's. Uh, and by the way, I'm not offering any judgment. Well, you know the police did it again. I'm just saying, you know the 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 George Floyd story was enough to get a lot of people set off. Um, I'm still not convinced. By the way. That uh, that that all of the truth is is out there in terms of uh, the George Floyd story. And that's that's not to say that uh, I'm denying that there's any racism or any uh, any, you know, abuse on the part of of uh, agents of the state. No, I know there are problems, but uh, I have heard and I've seen this actually through a couple of credible sources now that uh, charges may actually be dropped in the George Floyd case in light of the fact that. His cause of death was a fentanyl overdose as opposed to asphyxiation because of the pressure on his neck. Now, I know the optics of the police officer, uh, you know, kneeling on his neck. That was that was bad. But if you have watched the extended uh, body cam video, you can see there are numerous times before he ever is on the ground with police kneeling on him. There were several officers kneeling on him, by the way. Um, He was complaining he couldn't breathe. And he was panicking because he couldn't breathe, and it it makes a whole lot more sense when you understand that uh, the guy was was on fentanyl and apparently had was overdosing on fentanyl, and had he just peacefully got into the police car, he would very likely have died peacefully there in the back seat of a fentanyl overdose, tragic still. But it kind of changes the the narrative a little bit from uh, from the you know the racist police officers just went out of their way to kill an innocent black man i don 't know where it stops i i 'll admit i'm i 'm getting more nervous as uh, especially as the election gets closer. It seems like the intensity and frequency of these incidents are starting to to ramp up. Um, there are people who are looking for a reason to go off and frankly i 'm kind of surprised um that uh, that we didn't see more violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It was bad enough. I mean, they were trashing police vehicles. They surrounded the police station. Um, when when you see courthouses, police stations, and so forth under siege, that's a pretty good indicator that uh, you're getting ready to come apart at the seams. It means that the police are being seen and being treated as more of an occupying army than as uh, a force out there supporting law, order, peace. Justice, that kind of thing. So, I, I apologize for diving right in on on some of the negatives, but I'm I, I'm just I'm just blown away by how thoroughly we are coming apart at the seams. And and of course, uh, you know the the violence in the streets is just a part of it too. There's there's uh, there's crisis at just about every turn. And and I, I don't want to. This is going to sound dramatic to say this, but I I, I really want to put this into context. I don't think that it's so much a matter of, well, this is just proof that my politics are right and yours are wrong. I know there are people out there who are are pushing that idea in every possible way. But I I see this this encompasses so much more. Look at the general incivility of the way that people are treating one another when it comes to, uh, you know, just, you know, shopping at the store. I had a a conversation going with a friend yesterday on Facebook. Um, He was really upset about the idea that he says, you know, taking out your frustrations on store clerks and teachers or school administrators or others in service positions. He says people are absolutely unable to affect any of the change you want to see and using children as pawns, too. He says that's nothing more than an act of cowardice. Now, specifically, he's talking about the uh, the mask mandates and boy, if there's a flashpoint right now in society, I think, frankly, I think this one's even more concerning and more widespread than alleged, you know, police brutality against people of color, simply because I, I know for a fact that the, the, the brutality of the state is not reserved simply for, you know, someone who has, you know, more p- pigment in their skin than another person. But the incivility over masks, wow, it's, it's getting crazy. And it's a two way street. You know there are people who are going and provoking confrontation at to uh, stores or businesses or elsewhere over uh, you know you can't make me wear a mask. And there are also people that are in in being put in positions of enforcement of masks to where they're becoming petty little dictators. And and they're they're taking out their frustrations on people who aren't causing any provable harm whatsoever. One of the more interesting stories we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we go on in the show today is that there are a lot of parents in, in southern Utah who are contemplating sending their kids to school today without masks to protest the governor's mask mandate for public schools. And I've seen from parents who, who I've seen some parents who are very, very strong advocates for, "You should never be forced to wear a mask," who are saying, "I don't know how I feel about sending my kid in there and saying, "Here you go to battle." I get the whole civil disobedience aspect, and, and I'm still not sure whether I agree or not. The The truth of the matter is, like, you know, sitting at the lunch counter during the days of segregation or refusing to give up your seat on the bus like Rosa Parks did. There's a time when civil disobedience really has its place, and this may well be how to do that. And for those who say, well, why don't you, why don't you send your kids in there? Why don't you just keep them home from school? Well, I don't know if you've ever heard of these things called truancy laws. But uh, the school districts will come after you, and I mean legally come after you with the force of law, if you don't send your kids to school. So, okay, maybe I do send my kid to school, and I send my kid to school without a mask. And if enough parents do this, what are the schools going to do, really? I mean, look, the administrators have some discretion. I know they say, well, if we don't obey the governor, why, that's a misdemeanor, and there's lawsuits that will be filed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, somebody's going to flex somewhere. But if everybody, or if enough people, you have several hundred kids who say, we're not wearing our masks. Really? What are they going to do? Are they going to call police to arrest all of them? Come on, think about this. They don't have the resources to do this. And I, I know there were those complaining. In fact, my friend who had posted this, I just can't believe the the incivility. You know, what uh, what happens here? You know, why why are they taking it out on people who have no power to to make policy? Look, sometimes it's it's just the right thing to stand up. And sometimes uh, people need to understand that, uh, you know, you can take a softer approach. And still get the same kind of results. For instance, when someone, when someone is standing there enforcing masks at the store where you shop. Do they have the power to use violence against you? Think about this for a second. They don't. They don't have that power. The best they can do is they can say, we don't want your business. Maybe you should take my friend's advice that I was sharing last week. Pull out your cell phone and say, okay, can I just get this uh, on record? that you're telling me you don't want my business. Now, the optics of that is going to look pretty dang bad for the store. Yeah, we don't want your business. Okay, well, you know, there it is. They've got it out in the open. Well, they're just doing their job, Brian. I know, I know. We don't want to make the camp guards' lives harder. They're just doing their jobs, too. But you see, it starts somewhere and then progresses into things that we never thought people would be enforcing or doing or, or inflicting on one another in the name of, well, somebody told me to do this. If you haven't already Googled or uh, just go to Wikipedia, look up the Milgram experiment. It is it is so eye-opening to see how people behave when they believe that there's a little bit of authority backing this, this uh, request to do something that, is, is harming another person, or at least in the case of the Milgram experiment, was believed to be harming another person. In a nutshell, this is the experiment where a person in a lab coat is telling a person to uh, ask questions of someone who is unseen on the other side of a barrier who is supposedly hooked up to electrodes, and for every wrong answer, they get an electrical shock. The person giving the questions pushes a button. A shock is administered, and the shock gets more and more powerful as the experiment continues. And people on the other side, of course, they weren't actually hooked up to electricity, but they played like they were. They'd scream and they'd beg and then eventually even go silent as the shock entered lethal territory. And it was very unsettling how many people who were giving those questions and being told, push the button, all the person in the lab coat said is, the experiment must continue. And you can see people struggle with it. Should I do it? Should I continue doing this? A surprising amount did. Why? Because someone in authority was saying that they had to, and that absolved them of responsibility. Well, you see my point here, don't you? Right and wrong doesn't depend on what someone in authority is telling you. Right and wrong is something you and I have to suss out in our own hearts. And we better get good at it, because the time is here.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I apologize if in the first segment I sound like uh, I'm treating the show as as my uh, you know personal therapy session. Had a lot on my mind, and I just wanted to get some things off my chest as we got going. And uh, and now hopefully I'm going to provide some some uh, some answers, or at least some some ideas of ways that that we can can navigate our way forward in in a positive direction because. I know that there are a lot of people looking around right now today, myself included, going, whew, I don't like where this is going. I don't like how this looks like it's, it's uh, shaping up. And it's just getting crazier by the minute. You have heard, of course, about uh, there's an asteroid apparently going to be passing by the Earth the day before the election. All those who are saying, I want to vote for the giant asteroid hitting the Earth 2020. Well, I don't think you're going to get your wish, but the universe apparently has a sense of humor because it's sending an asteroid just in case. By the way, our show is brought to you in part each day at this time by our st- our sponsors, including FireSteel.com and our friends at StaplesMortgage.com. That's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I will have uh, some more kind words about both of them a little bit later in the show. Let's talk about the belief in lockdown. Stacy Rudin, in a piece that was published on the American Institute for Economic Research is begging people to think, rethink why they go along with what is being mandated for us in terms of lockdowns. And I think that she's got the the point here. I I really believe we're standing at a crossroads right now, and the decisions that we make in this hour are going to gravely affect not only our own lives as we move ahead, but also potentially the lives of our kids, our grandkids, and, and maybe many generations yet to come. So this is the kind of thing we really need to be operating on something other than emotion, other than fear or anger. Stacy Rudin says, Storied minds have argued that a failure to critically examine our beliefs makes us culpable for adverse outcomes. Beliefs lead to actions which impact other people. As Voltaire wrote during the Enlightenment, when society still had time away from the screen to reflect on philosophy, morality and fundamental truth those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Now, this has never been more true than in the age of social media, when information and opinions constantly bombard us from all sides, isolating us from our own thoughts and values. She says we have a moral duty to critically examine our beliefs, especially our belief in lockdown, the most oppressive and universally destructive public policy implemented in our lifetimes. Is it the least restrictive means available to minimize casualties in this pandemic? That's a valid question, by the way. Stacey Rudin says our belief in it was formed when we felt legitimate fear, and this can lead to irrationality. So we really can't answer this question in good conscience unless and until we take the time to conduct a proper, honest examination with the benefit of hindsight. Any number of atrocities can occur when human beings act on unfounded, unexamined beliefs. She says, consider the example of the ship owner in William Kingdon Clifford's 1876 essay, The Ethics of Belief. Troubled by the condition of his aging ship, which others have suggested is not well built and is in need of repairs, he eventually pacifies himself with these comforting thoughts. She had gone safely through so many voyages and weathered so many storms that it was idle to suppose that she would not come home from this trip also. The ship owner develops a sincere conviction that she will not sink and acts on his belief. He watched the ship's departure with a light heart and benevolent wishes for the success of the exiles in their strange new home that was to be. And he got his insurance money when she went down in mid-ocean and told no tales. Now, Stacy Rudin says, what shall we say of him? Surely this, he was guilty, verily guilty of the death of those men. It's admitted that he did sincerely believe in the soundness of his ship, but the sincerity of his conviction can in no wise help him because he had no right to believe on such evidence as was before him. He had acquired his belief not by honestly earning it in patient investigation, but by stifling his doubts. I'm sorry, there's the end The quote of the quote from the essay there. Now, the ship's owner was beliefs, the ship owner's belief rather, was built on sand. He knew he had questions to answer, but instead, he took the comfortable path, and other people had to pay for their pay with their lives for it. So while it may appear that he personally got off easy, you can see that his reputation, his confidence, and his conscience surely suffered. Stacy Rudin says people who harbor false beliefs and ignore warning signs routinely end up grievously harmed. Consider the uh, investors in Elizabeth Holmes' Theranos scam. Theranos scan, rather, or a Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme or the parents of Larry Nassar's little girl gymnasts. These examples prove just how easily the trust and credulity of very intelligent people is easily exploited. And she says it happens like magic in broad daylight. Millions are lost or gained. Irreparable actions are taken with the victim all the while believing he or she is choosing to participate in a beneficial relationship or situation. The passengers trusted the ship owner. The investors trusted the entrepreneurs. The parents trusted the doctor. Should we be trusting government? Perhaps instead of taking the easy path of blind faith, Stacy Rudin says we should challenge our government's assertions about COVID-19 and how to deal with it. After all, governments have already admitted to manipulating us in writing. Quote, perceived threat. A substantial number of people still do not su- feel sufficiently personally threatened. It could be that they are reassured by the low death rate in their demographic group. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. End quote. Now, Stacy Rudin says, I respectively submit to you, anyone willing to adopt this shady tactic is not worthy of your blind trust. And by the way, she links to the source in her article. yes. That's legit, a government admitting that they will need to manipulate us in writing. Governments know that people, emotional people especially, are easy to manipulate. As Robert Greene wrote in the authoritative tome on human nature, you like to imagine yourself in control of your fate, consciously planning the course of your life. But you are largely unaware of how deeply your emotions dominate you. They make you veer toward ideas that soothe your ego. They make you look for evidence that confirms what you already want to believe. Logically, terrified people want to believe in the existence of a sturdy lifeline. They like that that lifeline, that lifeline even more if grasping onto it makes them good people and turns them into those who prefer to swim with the tide and turns rather those who prefer to swim with the tide into killers. Knowing what it knows about human nature says Stacy Rudin, we can be certain our government knew that proposing lockdown to us at this particular moment was pretty much guaranteed to succeed. It would be wise to take the government to task now that we've calmed down. What have they asked us to believe? Why have they asked us to believe it? What are the grounds for doubt? And by the way, she goes through a number of these. I'm going to leave these for you because I want you to check them out for yourself. Belief number one, lockdown saves lives. She takes this to, uh, to task And I think proves beautifully, no, lockdowns do not save lives, at least not in comparison to those places that didn't lock down and did not suffer for not uh, locking down. Belief number two, it's imperative for everyone to avoid COVID-19. We've all been told it. Is it true, though? And again, Stacey Rudin takes this to task. Belief number three, if she doesn't wear a mask, I won't be safe. Belief number four, if I was wrong about the lockdown, that makes me gullible and unintelligent. I think this is probably the reason right here why a lot of people are are most entrenched in their beliefs. They don't want to believe that they were duped. I don't know if it makes you feel any better, but we were all duped. Every last one of us to some degree. Don't be resentful of the skeptics who started questioning early on and, for whatever reason, got it right or even got it mostly right. Just admit your mistake. Move on and grow. That's what human beings are supposed to do. Belief number five, COVID-19 is more dangerous, much more dangerous than the flu. No. She debunks each of these, and again, this is from Stacy Rudin in an article published on the American Institute for Economic Research. You can find the complete article in my show notes at the show.com We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I want to take a moment here to uh, give thanks to uh, one of my sponsors, and that is firesteel.com. You've heard me talk about them. If you haven't been to their website yet, again, it's very simple firesteel.com. You really should go there. See for yourself what they have to offer in way of these, uh, these incredible fire starting implements. We're talking ferro rods and magnesium fire starters, the, the flint and steel. If you will. I mean, I'm kind of using mountain man vernacular, but uh, what I'm describing is a way to start a fire under virtually any conditions. And it's a, it's a skill that is not difficult to acquire. They make it as easy as possible. And these are the kinds of things that you should have available in every aspect of your preps, whether it's in your car kit, your 72 hour kit, your personal long term preps. Some means of getting a fire started when you need it is extremely essential. If you're going to be stranded on a desert island, right, what would you need? What would you want? Would you want the ability to, to start a fire under any conditions? Well, this is the kind of thing. I'm not that we're planning on being stranded on a desert island, but hey, if 2020's taught us anything, it's that this year is very unpredictable. Go to FireSteel.com. Check out their incredible fire starters. I'm pretty sure you'll be convinced this is actually a pretty smart idea. We should have one or more of these. When you get to checkout, put in my name, Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, as the coupon code. They'll give you a nice discount. FireSteel.com. All right. There is a lot of other stuff I wanted to share with you today. Let's uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, we, we shared the article from Stacy Rudin about stop believing in lockdowns. And I mentioned earlier that uh, parents in in southern Utah, in my home state of Utah, they, they are really upset about the fact that their kids are being mandated to wear masks all the time, everywhere, and, and being threatened with misdemeanors if they don't. You disobey the governor's order. Why, that's a misdemeanor punishable by up to a year in jail and a thousand dollar fine. Well, for not wearing a piece of cloth on your face. I mean, the, the insanity grows. Jeff Tucker, writing for uh, the American Institute for Economic Research, talks about, uh, you know, lockdown and especially who should be standing up against lockdown. And, you know, it's look, I know it's common to think, well, we should do it for the children. But he makes a very strong case that older Americans, yes, the ones who are at risk for COVID-19, should be some of the most uh, staunch anti-lockdown advocates. Listen to the case that he makes here. He says it's happened to quite a number of us. We write against the lockdowns for all the incredible economic, psychological and institutional carnage they've caused and how they've shattered our expectations uh, of our rights and freedoms and our presumptions about what the government has the power to do to us. We can make a convincing case we see no basis for disrupting social functioning in the event of a pandemic, no matter how terrible it is, as he's been writing since January 27th of this year. Indeed, he says that original article assumed as a matter of argument that C-19 was going to be as bad as Ebola, which it very obviously is not. He says, as the pandemic unfolded, it became clear that there is an undeniable demographic to the C-19 virus threat, something we've known since perhaps February, if not earlier. He says, I believed at the time that the realization would cause policy to get smarter. But rather than wreck society, we clearly needed a demographic-based response that could be voluntary rather than coercive. The fatality threat level for healthy people under 65 is lower than the risk of dying in a car crash. And by the way, he's got some great graphs and charts that show this. As demographic data has poured in, Jeff Tucker writes, and it has finally become common knowledge that the average age of death from or with COVID-19 is 80 years with comorbidities. Indeed, in only 6% of COVID deaths is COVID listed as the only cause the typical death from COVID 19 lists 2.6 additional health factors. Okay, just as a quick aside, does that not give some needed perspective? And yet we're being told this is such a deadly thing. We're going to have mandatory vaccinations. Everybody has to lock down. Everybody has to wear masks. Really? In only 6% of COVID deaths, is COVID listed as the only cause? And the typical death from COVID, that's 94%. 94%. And he says the typical death from COVID-19 lists 2.6 additional health factors. Now, once this became obvious, Jeff Tucker says, so too has come the accusation that if you oppose those lockdowns, you don't care for the aged or infirmed. You're trying to kill grandmother, as the popular lockdowner saying goes. Now, that's a purely emotional, emotional argument, rather, that basically accuses anti-lockdowners of bad faith, which is a particularly nasty way to go about disagreeing with anyone. Jeffrey Tucker says it's especially offensive given the many lives lost in New York and New Jersey long term care facilities due to governments having forced COVID-19 patients on them. Cuomo, in particular, forced 6,300 patients into these facilities, exposing the most vulnerable in the middle of a pandemic and resulting in many thousands and perhaps tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths. Still, the claim keeps being made that those who favor openness are being cruel toward older Americans. But Jeff Tucker says the opposite is true. The whole point of how a free society deals with a pandemic is to share the burden of gaining immunity among the population that is least vulnerable in order that the virus can burn itself out through herd immunity, exactly as we have always done. Once this process plays out, Older and vulnerable populations can live their lives in safety from the virus, the sooner the better. This is why schools never should have closed. It's why beaches should have stayed open, why bars, dance clubs, and professional meetings should have gone ahead. Calm and normal social functioning were necessary to deal a swift blow to the virus so that the vulnerable populations would not be forced to shelter in place for many months, much less for a full year. The refreshingly blunt Newt Witkowski makes this point or made this point rather at the onset of the pandemic. Quote, with all respiratory diseases, the only thing that stops the disease is herd immunity. About 80 percent of the people need to have had contact with the virus. And the majority of them won't even have recognized that they were infected or they had very, very mild symptoms, especially if they're children. So it's very important to keep the schools open and the kids mingling to spread the virus, to get herd immunity as fast as possible. <clears throat> and then the elderly people who should be separated and the nursing homes should be closed during that time could, can come back and meet their children and grandchildren after about four weeks when the virus has been exterminated. End quote. Now, Newt Witkowski, Wit- Witkowski's 80% figure, of course, turns out to be far less due to shared immunities with other coronaviruses and inherent T-cell immunity. Jeff Tucker says the latest estimates of herd immunity threshold is 10 to 20%, meaning that this virus can be dispatched quickly upon arrival, provided we do not impose measures to keep people apart by force. This is so obvious even the New York Times has covered this. Canceling schools and events just prolongs the pain and increases the risk that the vulnerable populations are exposed through errors in judgment or otherwise die of loneliness and sadness due to restrictions on visitors and being cooped up indoors for months and months. This is extremely cruel. Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University goes further to say that the policies of forced closures and imposed distancing are deeply immoral and a violation of the social contract. To add a new virus to the coded immunities of the human experience absolutely requires widespread exposure among those who are not vulnerable. 80% of the cases under age 25 are asymptomatic. She says herd immunity is the way of preventing vulnerable people from dying. Let people go about their business. Allow herd immunity to build up. Now, this is remarkable insight that might seem counterintuitive to us today. But Jeff Tucker says this is because we've apparently lost knowledge of how the immune system works. Back in mid-April, David Katz, one of the leading virologists of, from Yale and the author of 17 books, went on Bill Maher's show and in the clearest terms explained, I think people have a hard time confronting and accepting. We actually kind of want to get this and get it over with and be immune because that is the path to the all clear that doesn't require us to make or wait for a vaccine. End quote. Still, his plea went unheard. And those health experts have found themselves very frustrated by their failure to get it to get to it through to policymakers that slowing the spread and flattening the curve just prolongs the pain and forces vulnerable populations to stay isolated in ways that are harmful to mental and physical health. Speaking out to help everyone understand this has been Harvard Medical School professor Martin Koldorf, who, fed up with all the nonsense being preached by the lockdowners, wrote a series of articles and sent tweets to clarify the reality of the viruses. Things like immunity is age dependent. If we protect the low risk young through school closures but not the high risk elderly, sending infected individuals to nursing homes, then there will be many deaths. Very sad. Now, there's more to this article. We can come back to it in a few moments. But I strongly encourage you to think about this. This is not a matter of denying science. This is not a matter of just irrationally thrashing about, demanding more rights. This is recognizing that what is being done is actually causing more harm than the virus itself is causing.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde
1: Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Thank you for reveling in wrong think with me today. I've been sharing an article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research about why older Americans should be anti-lockdown activists. Oh, I know it sounds counterintuitive. Aren't they the ones at most risk? Isn't the lockdown protecting them? I think Tucker makes a pretty good case here that uh, no, actually, it's putting them at even greater risk And he has has got some phenomenal data to back him up. There was a final thought here that I wanted to share from him. He says, all of this wisdom is the opposite of the strange global policy priority of run and hide from a virus. He says, it makes no scientific sense. It's contrary to every intuition that a free society should have. Herd immunity is not a strategy. It's like gravity, a recognition of reality, as Kolsdorf says. Now, he says, I get this is a difficult subject in an age that demands easy answers to everything. So he says, let me personalize this a little bit. Back in March, when many people had become concerned about the virus, he says, I wanted to see my mother across the country. She's absolutely among the vulnerable populations due to age and health. And he says, I refrained from visiting her for fear that I could be a carrier. She objected, but I still refrained. She then said, it's okay. It's okay. This virus will be gone in a month or two once young people get it and get over it. Now, of course, she had no idea that the world would go full medieval, that schools would be shut down, that people were forced apart, events canceled, and the whole of society would pursue a, a policy of prolonging the pain as long as possible. We don't know to what extent these lockdowns have actually prevented herd immunity from arriving sooner, but it is possible this is precisely what happened. That means she must go a longer period of time to wait in relative isolation to see her family, including me. Now, Jeff Tucker says it would not be entirely wrongheaded to describe lockdown and social distancing regulations as equally selfish on the part of young people as it is cruel to older people, whereas an age specific policy of herd immunity is the compassionate and rational route. Now, the people who are trying to educate others about all this describe their alternative view as a policy, but it's not necessarily that. All one needs to do in order to achieve the best results is to preserve social functioning in the absence of panic, which is what we've done in the United States over the last 100 years. Older and infirm populations have long known avoid crowds during flu season. As for the non-vulnerable populations, they've always just gone about their lives, such as holding Woodstock in the middle of a pandemic. The best policy on dealing with the virus, bolstering immunities among young people while protecting the vulnerable, is the freedom to behave rationally. He says any other policy risks the kind of carnage we see around us today, even as the virus has wickedly and profoundly affected our oldest Americans. Lockdowns have done nothing to protect anyone while creating astonishing chaos and confusion all around, with no evidence that they've minimized mortality for any groups. I can't recommend this article strong enough. Get it in the show notes. Again, that's uh, you'll find it at uh, com. Check it out. These are the show notes for August 24th, 2020. I just, man, I agree with him so strongly. And I relate to him. My own mother is in her mid-80s. And I have seen her, I think, twice since uh, this whole lockdown business started. I talk to her on a very regular basis, and I hear from her regularly how, how uh, she is fighting depression, and it just strikes me as, as horribly unnecessary. She's scared to death, by the way, and that's, that's the product of a lot of the, uh, the fear-mongering that's going on. I just wish that uh, cooler heads would prevail, and I, I don't think they're going to unless the rest of us insist on it. So let's find some courage and let's make that happen. All right, shifting gears. There's an awful lot of anger and uh, there's an awful lot of misinformation out there about uh, America. And I wanted to talk for a little bit about how can we, with all the vitriol being directed at everyone and everything that came before us, is it possible to learn something positive about America? Jeff Minnick, writing for IntellectualTakeout.org has a remarkable essay called The Great American Story. It's time to accentuate the positive. Listen to what he has to say. He says the theme of the upcoming 2020 Republican National Convention will be honoring the great American story. Rather than criticizing all that's wrong with America, as the Democrats are likely to do, Republicans plan on celebrating American life and history. On the opening day of the convention, which is today, Speakers will focus on America as the land of promise, the land of opportunity, on Tuesday the land of heroes, on Wednesday and the convention closing on Thursday with the land of greatness theme. Excellent. He says, Heavens knows we need some sunshine and cheer after the darkness and apprehension of the past six months. Now he says, I suspect whoever invented this theme was probably inspired in their selection of these topics by Wilfred McKay's Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. He says, I certainly hope so, as this textbook of U.S. history for high school and college students is one of the best I've seen. It's balanced and fair in its history. It does indeed read like a story, and it's written with deep affection for our country. In fact, he reviewed the book for intellectual takeout in June of 2019. And at that time, he said in his epilogue, The Shape of American Patriotism, McClay accurately writes that his book never loses sight of what there is to celebrate and cherish in the American achievement. This splendid closing essay examines the tensions between the American creed and American culture, between its universalizing ideals and its particular particularizing sentiments, with their emphasis upon memory, history, tradition, culture and the land. He goes on to say that Land of Hope is not an uncritical celebration of American achievements, but adds love is the foundation of the wisest criticism, and criticism is the essential partner of an honest and enduring love. In other words, our national conversation must include the good, the bad, and the ugly. But by the same token, the great story, the thread that we share, should not be lost in a blizzard of details or a hailstorm of rebukes. McClay, rather, is a scholar who clearly loves his country. Bringing land of hope into our homes, public libraries, and classrooms would not only take us one step closer to the self-governing life, but might spark in our hearts the desire to love, and learn about the great American story. That seems reasonable, especially I like his take on criticism. I think that that is is actually one of the best depictions that I've heard. Love is the foundation of the wisest criticism, and criticism is the essential partner of an honest and enduring love. Now, Jeff Tucker says... Here, too, we realize why Land of Hope stands apart from so many other American history textbooks. He says in the guides, there, there's a guide that's been released now, apparently, in its in its epilogue, The Shape of American Patriotism. McClay and his co-author give us the passage, which adds a quote from G.K. Chesterton pertinent to their philosophy of history. Quote, Men did not, did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her. And he says the same is true with the United States in today's dark circus of looting and burning in our cities and accusations from many on the left that all white Americans are racist and that the Constitution is worn out and should be trashed and that America itself has always been evil. There seems to be little love left for our country, contempt and hatred for America's laws and government, its system of free enterprise, its culture, even some of their fellow citizens are standard fare for these folks. Surely that loathing stems in part from an ignorance of history and a slanted education. If we ask these radicals why the Declaration of Independence was itself one of the most radical of all political documents in human history, or why the Bill of Rights is essential to our freedom, he says, I'm reasonably certain many of them would respond either with blank stares or their usual obscenities. Jeff Minnick says this opprobrium is is a consequence of Marxism. Some leaders of Black Lives Matter, for example, proudly identify themselves as trained Marxists. And Antifa seems to advocate for both anarchism and communism, which makes for a contradiction in terms. Again, those who push for that agenda reveal themselves fools in light of the history of the past century of communism, with its 100 million murders, its incarcerations, and its tyranny. Now, he says, many of my readers here will be homeschooling or distance learning from various public and private schools this fall. A source at a large home education outfit informs Jeff that this summer, their enrollments are up 100% over previous years. and that their warehouses and printers are running 24 hours a day. Whatever educational pathway you decide to take with your children, he says, I urge you to incorporate Land of Hope into your curriculum. As McClay says, your children will learn the good, the bad, and the ugly of the past but they will also learn those lessons from two teachers who love their country. I love it, and I think it's, it's sound advice. And this is one of the reasons why I am, I'm such an advocate for. If you really want to understand history, there are a couple things you want to do. Seek out original sources, and as much as possible, read books that were written in the time period that you are studying. But you have to be willing to do this yourself and not just take somebody else's word for it because that's where the rubber meets the road.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.